Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Uh, my co-host this week is Chris Jenny, one of our training cadre for the Cato Team Leader class. And Chris and I are sitting down with uh, Mark Lang, who works in uh, North Texas and teaches for TACFLOW. And we're going to talk about public venue responses. So Mark, for those uh, folks that haven't met you at the Cato Conference or at NTUA events, uh, would you mind just giving us a brief story about your background and how you ended up kind of working through this uh, public venue response? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for uh, having me on. It's always been a pleasure for to come out to the state of California and train what I uh, really believe is some of the finest uh, SWAT uh, tactical officers in the country. So, uh, pleasure to be on, be on this platform and speak to the Cato membership. Uh, I've been out to uh, the Cato conference, I believe, several times and have interacted also with uh, as much of the membership as I can. My background is I'm still active uh, with uh, North Texas uh, uh, Law Enforcement Agency. In fact, tomorrow uh, is my 29th year uh, as a member of that organization, and uh, currently I'm approaching 22 years as a member of our full-time SWAT team. Um, how I got doing what I'm doing is very, it's, 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 it's kind of crazy because everything that has occurred in my path and journey to where I'm at now teaching and trying to make my peer group uh, better and also advocate for them uh, really kind of just, you know, was a natural course for me. Um, deploying at the home football stadium uh, in Dallas, uh, I, I found myself in overwatch position and uh, as a young green uh, rookie uh, SWAT team member and also a police sniper, uh, I was uh, in an elevated position uh, on the press box side. And um, I, I kind of asked the senior snipers with me, I said, uh, do you think a, a precision rifle uh, shot is even possible uh, from where we're at and how we're going to make this happen? And they said, probably not, probably uh, very, very difficult. And uh, that that response just kind of bothered me uh, because I really felt like I was up there as a uh, uh, liability uh, checklist. And uh, so to that end, that is that is what motivated me, drove me to uh, pursue live fire training and public venues, not only uh, in my home uh, city, but also across the country. So you saw a problem and tried to fix it, and as a result of that, you developed uh, some expertise in that area, and now you're traveling around the country teaching the rest of us uh, what I would consider to be some of the best practices. And even with COVID right now, we're not really talking about that, but it's not going to be very long before we're all back to, I don't know if I want to call it normal, I'm afraid. So we'll, we'll, uh, we're back to, we're going out to these big, big events. Chris uh, has had the pleasure of uh, going down to Las Vegas and uh, seeing how they plan their public venue responses after uh, you know their their big event. And so, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you are some of the basic principles that that you cover or teach about the preparation, planning, and uh, executing 
uh, that response plan. And I know particularly you're you're looking at it from a sniper point of view, which I'm assuming is really uh, a large portion of the controlling factor as far as being able to control uh, the other unit's responses to wherever that that conflict is taking place inside the stadium. Is that is that a fair question? Yeah, no, good question. Uh, it it and I'll be honest in and and how I say this sometimes and can, can upset some of the entry personnel on the SWAT teams is, uh, yes, I am a police sniper, but I also am a SWAT operator on my team. So first and foremost, uh, you know, you're an operator and you've got to be able to do all the assignments that you're tasked with. The specialty for me is police sniper. Now, with that being said, uh, when we go out and teach the curriculum, we're not just teaching, I mean, the cricket, this course is, always been so much more than just the actual physical act of pulling the trigger um, at a venue. It always has been. And we, we definitely tell that to those that are in the course. Uh, if you came here just to, you know, uh, check the bus list and say, I shot into a, I shot in a stadium, I shot in an arena, uh, wherever it's at, and pat yourself on the back, that's not what we're looking for. We're, we're looking to affect you, how you see things and how you think about things and so that you will go back and express this to your teammates, to your supervision um, and promote change. Uh, I, I don't, you know, picking up and leaving your family and, and all the instructors, I've got incredible instructors that teach with us to go everywhere in the country. We're just not doing, we're doing that because we want to invest in our community and we want, we want those guys uh, and gals to go back and affect positive change in how they're doing. Now, you know, since Las Vegas in 2017, there's been a huge uptick of Overwatch assignments. Uh, you know, if you did not have a React team uh, in the past, uh, because of Vegas, you should only have a React team now. So uh, a lot of the things that we've been teaching and preaching in the public venue footprint, uh, we've now seen come to fruition uh, just about every, everywhere in the country. But preparation starts with knowing your venue, first and foremost. I typically find that SWAT teams that have large venues, football stadiums, baseball parks, you name it, whether it's uh, commercial sport, which is the professional level, whether it's intercollegiate or uh, interscholastic, uh, the extent sometimes of their familiarity with the venue is uh, the rappel guys going out, dropping some lines and doing some rappelling because that's the most, that's the least intrusive training you can do at the venue. And, you know, it's kind of like, can we please do this in the venue? We'll acquiesce to your, you know, very limited uh, bill, you know, and they always say, hey, just make sure your boots don't leave off, you know, have a marking sole that's gonna leave a black spot on the, uh, the side of the wall. So with that being said, you gotta know your venue. So imagine doing a hostage rescue operation uh, on a target location where you very well could know the layout, but because you haven't been there to walk it, and I mean to walk every part of the venue, uh, this HR is going to be conducted basically with the unknown floor plan. Uh, you wouldn't want to be in there. That's that's kind of the worst case. You want to get eyes inside the, the location. Well, it's very similar with these venues that our teams are being tasked with providing uh, quote security for right um, they 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 really don't go out and spend time at the venue and get to know 
every nook and cranny of that place. Yeah, Mark, that was definitely something that I took note of uh, doing that uh, walkthrough with you previously is the uh, threat recognition and really getting a good understanding for the scale of the uh, tactical problem that you may face and uh, density, just recognizing how many people are going to be at this venue that you're going to have to navigate while trying to uh, neutralize a potential threat. Yeah, you know, uh, you, you really, and I encourage everybody uh, to rank the threats at the venue you're deploying at. So what I mean by that is, uh, of all the potential attack methods that could occur, uh, you know, recently this past uh, uh, November, we were back in San Diego at uh, Petco Park. We actually conducted that course. It was our second uh, uh, urban area security initiative funded course, UASI. Uh, but I asked them, I said, rank the threats here. And this is to the snipers that are all in the course. And they said, without a depth, the number one threat here is the high rise buildings or vertical buildings that exist around Petco Park. I said, okay, so that is your number one threat. Now, give me number two, give me number three. Now, what you have to keep in mind is, depending on where we're running this course at in the country, ranking those threats are interchangeable, and they quite often do change. One venue may have, hey, the greatest threat is active shooter, active killer. The other one may say uh, a person-born improvised explosive device or a vehicle-born improvised explosive device. The other one will say, well, Mark, really, it's uh, the proliferation of drones flying over there, uh, over the stadium and having a countermeasure for drones. So it kind of varies depending on where you're at in the country, uh, but you, you need to rank your threats and then that is a great place to start from and, and how many, and again, when you get into manpower, resources, all, this thing, all these things that you need to know, you gotta, you gotta kind of start with, what are we really worried about here at this particular venue or large scale event? So basically, very similar to the standard planning process for any other SWAT mission, identifying what, what you want it to look like and then rating your threats and what kind of contingencies and how can we prepare for them. So it's a great nexus to standard practical planning, except for the ter terrain and density are, uh, can be wildly different. Yeah, yeah, there, there's a lot of parallels. Uh, that, that's a good pickup by you. Uh, between just typical conventional SWAT operations and then what you're going to do uh, at the venue. So what are, what are some of the the challenges you've seen or lessons you've learned as you've traveled throughout the country country and you've, you've gone to all these different kinds of venues? And, and you're right, Vegas is different than San Diego. And in my town, I don't have a lot of high-rise buildings, but, you know, we have a big fairgrounds. And, and right beside those fairgrounds is a freeway. And so... You know, one of our problems is how do we how do we keep people from stopping on that freeway, which basically can look down upon a crowd of several thousand people. And so we, we discuss, you know, those kind of threats as well. So what uh, what are some of the trends that you've seen or lessons you've learned in your experience, you know, meeting other law enforcement officers from around the country and looking at the challenges that they address? Well, let me let me first by say, uh, ask this question, you know, how how do we measure success? Uh, if you if your SWAT team is tasked with deploying at you know venue X and you deploy there every time there's a large event um, and everything goes off without incident, 
that's a success, right? Uh, because, you know, if we really want to get into, uh, when we talk about the uh, terroristic element here uh, and their ability to do surveillance on what we're doing, okay, um, if they see SWAT resources present, and again, they it may not have to be to any uh, uh, large degree, but if they see SWAT resources knowing that SWAT across the country is the best trained and the best equipped out there, then they may decide merely to keep driving down the road and plot somewhere where they don't have a fighting force to encounter. Um, I know you guys have spoken about if you've got if you've got a critical incident and you've got ten different uniformed officers showing up uh, that are in patrol or deputies, they're going to do ten different things, right? Um, with the SWAT team, they don't particularly want to fight us because our tactics and our training, even on the collateral duties side, we're going to be much more prepared to knock down their threat or whatever they're doing. But um, you know, I, I kind of go back to we have success. Uh, every weekend, uh, every week, uh, and again, this is, of course, pre-COVID, uh, we have success in safeguarding these, these venues. Uh, the venue industry, uh, which I uh, network with a lot, understands that in today's times, they need SWAT resources at their big events. They, they've come to this realization. Uh, I would say that is a predominant theme everywhere in the country, even in the Northeast. And I would say the Northeast is the one area that we haven't, we haven't done the, the training at, and that's for some other reasons, not, not necessarily because they, they don't understand that what SWAT brings to the table. But uh, we've had huge success. There hasn't been a directed attack at a sporting venue in the United States. There just hasn't. Now, does that mean there won't be? Uh, I am pretty sure there will be something that will occur and because our, our, our attention and our thoughts are, have been turned uh, recently for this past year to COVID-19, to the elections, to civil unrest, uh, I think we are primed for a uh, planned attack by a terrorist cell in this country, whether it's at a venue or at a substation for a police department. And that's a paradox that we face when we're, you know, properly uh, prepared for an event or an incident uh, and it doesn't, you know, something bad doesn't occur. Uh, it can be dismissed as just luck or we really never know if our proactive measures were a deterrent uh, for somebody who may have been uh, targeting that venue. And so the, the challenge is, uh, you know, constantly pushing to make sure that we're adequately staffing uh, these events and that we're properly trained for that overwatch role. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, you cover it in your course that, uh, you know, that overwatch role at the public venue is different from what's taught at a basic police sniper school. And there's uh, specific skills and considerations that need to be given. And it, and it starts even before uh, just, you know, where uh, that overwatch should be deployed from. It's, it's knowing and understanding the venue. Yeah, you know, kind of circling back to the original question, you know, future challenges, I'll tell you one that exists right now, and it is, is directly related to COVID-19. Uh, these venues uh, have, they haven't been able to bring people in, and the, the end result of that is they're not making money. 
So the venue industry as a whole is not making the money. Now, let's just try not to, let's just generalize this, not try to get too specific because you can spend forever talking about, well, you're talking about the NFL, you're talking about the NHL, you're talking about the NCAA. No. As a whole, because I interact, I speak to them, I know what they're talking about, they're not making much money. Um, so what does that mean for uh, uniform personnel that usually work the events? It means that they get cut back, they get scaled back because uh, security costs for law enforcement are pretty significant depending on what the event is. Now, take that a step further. If you've got your local SWAT team uh, deploying at the venue, um, that might be one of the first cuts. Or we may say that, you know, uh, for your two counter sniper teams that are up, let's back that down to one. And you can sit there and argue until you're blue in your face, but if this is a paid assignment uh, and they're their employer, kind of a special duty type deal, then you're probably gonna lose that uh, battle. Uh, same thing can happen to react teams, whether it's a uh, an immediate react team or a quick react team, depending on whether you're positioned inside or outside the venue, that could be something that's cut also. So I think, I don't think a lot of guys would necessarily uh, realize this, but they're not making money. Uh, they have budgets they have to stay uh, within. And I think COVID is uh, one of the biggest challenges going forward, especially in 2021, when, you know, I, I think we'll start having some more significant amount of of uh, people coming back to uh, the stems and other large events. And those impacts uh, certainly are hitting uh, agencies as far as their uh, funding goes as the uh, cities and counties uh, endure loss of revenue from all the COVID related shutdowns as well. So there's a significant effect that uh, COVID is going to have that, that may take a couple of years to recover from and building capabilities and skill sets back up as well. Yeah, without a doubt, and uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I think it's and again, I we we have been so focused on uh, COVID, the elections, and all the unrest we had, uh, you know, back in May and June. Uh, certainly, my team uh, had uh, quite a bit of it. Um, that um, we we've totally lost sight of uh, the the war on terror people that really, because of us being uh, the Western world, really want to hurt us. And um, we, we got to refocus on this. Uh, we got to realize that there's people that just because we're Americans, that they want to kill us. And uh, we, we've got to, got to kind of refocus back on this and uh, get going. Uh, complacency affects everybody. And certainly law enforcement is not an exception to this. Certainly SWAT team members are not an exception to this. It, it can get the best of everybody. Uh, just a quick little example. If you if you remember back to this Christmas morning, uh, back in December, uh, the vehicle-borne improvised explosive device that went off in downtown Nashville. Um, how much has your team talked about that? Uh, and how much have we already uh, put that in the past and moved on and not, you know, really wanted to seek out what really happened here with the information we have available at hand and what will we do if that VBID went off downtown LA, San Diego, or perhaps right outside of a venue. So, uh, you know, we have things that should refocus us and redirect uh, us. Uh, and certainly uh, that national VBID, uh, I continually almost uh, daily think about that 
and think about what that would look like in Dallas. Yeah, you make a great point. And uh, a little plug for Cato here. We sent our uh, after action uh, team team leader down to Nashville just last week, and he debriefed the SWAT guys on the ground there. And uh, he's going to be preparing a after action report on that and uh, probably a webinar real soon. So uh, we're working on that. What you're talking about, buddy, I think is uh, often referred to as deliberate blindness. And uh, that's uh, us not wanting to face a reality that we don't want to have happen. And uh, I know uh, this came up today in our team leader class where we have uh, team leaders, uh, brand new team leaders in our class from all over the state of California. Uh, Often we have them from uh, around the country, but uh, these guys are all uh, California guys. And they're talking about the ups and downs of venue response and how frustrated they are because uh, they'll go out and uh, have a react team that's hidden somewhere. Uh, Depending upon where you work, they may want your react team hidden. They may want them right out front where everybody sees them so that they know they're there in their long rifle teams and in these public venues. And then nothing will happen for a few months. And so they'll be like, you know, that's a lot of money. Maybe it's really, really not worth that. We should, we should maybe, uh, cut that back again and, and go through that yo-yo like we often can in law enforcement. In Vegas and uh, in Gilroy in uh, NorCal um, really reminded us that it doesn't really matter how big your venue is. Uh, this can happen anywhere, just like our uh, you know our active shooter, active killers. So you, you make a great point. I thought we made really good strides in our profession towards that to, uh, I think Vegas taught us a lot of lessons. And then uh, in California, Gilroy, uh, very shortly uh, after that, reminded us that it doesn't matter uh, how big your town is, and uh, and then COVID hit, and uh, all those all those things kind of went away. So we'll have to see as we start uh, unwrapping ourselves from COVID, and we start struggling uh, with funding. At least in California, we're definitely struggling with funding. I'm sure that affects everyone in the country. And then what what's that going to look like for for our venue? Right. Our venues are, like you said, struggling Uh, for us. We uh, I've been involved in that planning process with promoters and uh, they never like the cost of uh, having law enforcement come because it's it's a significant, you know, punch to their budgets. So uh, I think we have a window of opportunity when these really big events happen. And it's unfortunate they happen. No one in law enforcement wants them to happen. But when they do. It, it kind of brings that awareness back and fights that, that deliberate blindness, I guess. You know, if I can mention one thing that would assist some uh, with this is uh, uh, the Safety Act. So uh, the Safety Act was born out of the Homeland Security Act of 2002, uh, certainly a direct result of uh, 9-11. So what the Safety Act is probably the least known um, uh, act uh, that law enforcement would even know. It really has to do with uh, services and um, products that um, have been certified for public venues to use. Let me, so in the context I'm trying to explain this is there's a lot to the Safety Act, but I'll kind of hit the high point and give you the short answer on this. So the Safety Act, um, they have two levels of certification for the venue industry. So if you have a public venue uh, that is private or, you know, more private than public, uh, 
they know about the Safety Act and they want certifications within the Safety Act. So what does the Safety Act do for the public venue? It is basically third-party risk insurance from the U.S. government, okay? All this is administered through the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and again, largely unknown in law enforcement circles, but the venue industry is very, very aware of it. If I uh, use an example, it's Petco Park. Petco Park, uh, when we uh, presented the course this past November, uh, was one level below full certification for the Safety Act. So what that means is they have to meet certain standards, certain requirements outlined by the Department of Homeland Security so that they can get this certification. The certification, again, reduces their liability. Uh, where this is important for SWAT teams uh, is to understand that the venue industry has recognized. They're, they're out there and they have recognized that counter sniper teams and react teams a necessity for what they do. It is a almost a necessity for getting um, what they need out of the Safety Act. So you're finding a lot of uh, a lot of applications uh, by the venues uh, to get the certification. They will put in there that the local SWAT team deploys counter sniper teams and react teams at their venue that aids them in the application process in becoming fully certified, which invariably lowers their liability for mass, should a mass casualty incident occur. I'm, uh, I'm speechless. So I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. So you are absolutely correct. Um, that's, that's fantastic, man. Thank you. We'll, we'll look that up and I'll actually put a link in, uh, in the bottom of our, of our uh, bio and the podcast so people can kind of click on that because you all you got to do is hit search and you'll find that right away and you can learn more about it i also yeah, and the, and the, the, yeah the last thing about that is actually uh, uh tactical academy is uh, i've applied for uh, as a service for uh for approval for us to be a an approved uh service so for for those guys that call me and email me you know and i get quite a few uh weekly and monthly that say hey mark our venue just won't budge. They're just opposed to the idea of, you know, life fire, precision rifles, or doing any type of SWAT training, even if it's reality-based training, then I've got something to hopefully, when we get, when, not if, when we get certified uh, under the Safety Act ourselves because of our curriculum, that this will be, this will really help uh, get that process, uh, uh, you know, done in pretty short order. That's fantastic. Also, this discussion about the uh, elevated uh, sniper or counter sniper threat, uh, it's not lost on me that uh, the Texas Tower uh, incident at the uh, uh, University of Texas in Austin back in 1966 was one of the events that prompted the formation of SWAT teams. So the recognition of that potential threat uh, should still be like one of the ongoing primary missions that uh, SWAT teams uh, plan for because it was one of the things that prompted the creation of SWAT teams. Can we transition to something that they didn't have a problem with uh, in 1966, and that is sort of the uh, evolution of the aerial platform operations uh, here in the U.S.? Um, was there a particular landmark event uh, in this country that uh, prompted the development of that capability for tactical teams? You know, so I'll put this out as a disclaimer. Uh, I have, I have, of course, teaching aerial platform operations. I, I always 
uh, endeavor to learn as much as I can, I'm constantly learning even more, updating curriculums, uh, and I do that with all the courses that uh, we push out. But uh, to my, to the best of my knowledge, the first law enforcement use, uh, airborne use of force was back in 1984 in Manly Springs, Alaska, it involved the Alaska State uh, Troopers uh, who were basically doing a manhunt from the air for a spree killer uh, back in 84. Uh, that was the first one. In fact, uh, the History Channel uh, has done a, uh, a program on it also. I actually show uh, some of that uh, because of some very, very good learning points uh, in it. But uh, that's the first one. Keep in mind, though, um, you know, where did aerial platforms come from, aerial platform uh, come from, or aerial gunnery? And you got to keep in mind, it, there is, depending on who you're speaking with, uh, and if they have shot out of the helicopter, or if they've flown a helicopter that you know someone on the SWAT team is fired out of, or not on the SWAT team, they may call it uh, up to six or seven different term terminology. So it, it's all semantics at that point. But uh, you know, all this originated from the military. Uh, law enforcement just didn't decide back in you know the 60s that they would start shooting. Uh, it was someone who got trained in the military. Uh, got out of the military and then got on the SWAT team or, you know, was a pilot himself or a tactical flight officer and broached the topic and said, hey, how about this capability uh, from the air, from a moving platform? And that's kind of how this was birthed. Uh, but just like large caliber rifle, uh, all this stuff came from the military. Uh, it really was not, uh, you know, originated on the law enforcement side. So t talk to us a little about that. So uh, totally, thank you for the history lesson. I did not know that at all. Chris is rolling his eyes at me because he can't believe that I didn't know that. Um, Chris, <laughs> Chris remembers way more things than I do. Uh, so what are, what are some of the, what are some of the, you, the things you've seen, the challenges and, and when you're doing aerial platform shooting, uh, there's obviously, uh, as we've seen, uh, in the West Coast, some misapplications of that that uh, had caused some problems, and then we've seen some where, honestly, a few a few things we're just hoping, like, man, the only way to solve this problem is with an aerial platform uh, shooting. And could you uh, kind of for those folks that don't really know how often it's been used throughout the country and some of the circumstances, the tactical problems that have had to require aerial platform shooting. Could you fill us in a little bit since you obviously travel all over the country doing this? Yeah, so, you know, part of our curriculum involves uh, uh, the case studies of the previous uh, aerial use of force. Uh, that's actually been seven. Now, um, five of the seven have occurred in the state of California. Um, the other one was, uh, uh, Texas, and the other course was the first one uh, in Alaska. Um, so uh, your, one of your agencies there certainly uh, has been involved in three of them. That's been San Bernardino Sheriff's Office, and uh, you know uh, two of them went very well, and then one of them I think is still in litigation. And I don't point that out. Uh, trust me, if you're any of your listeners are with uh, SBSO. Um, you know, I, I'm very respectful of uh, things that sometimes don't go well, and we all know uh, in a crisis um, that can occur. But, uh, you know, I want to kind of gently uh, talk about, you know, the scrutiny that 
comes when um, the uh, the application that we're trying to achieve here, you know, aerial use of force doesn't go well. So uh, there's a lot of eyes on it. You got to understand, shooting from a helicopter um, is not mainstream for law enforcement. Uh, that should be obvious uh, when I sit there and tell you there's only been seven occurrences of it in the history of law enforcement. So uh, when the next one occurs, it'll be number eight. And um, whether it goes good or whether it goes bad, there's going to be scrutinization of it because we're just not used to seeing it. Um, you know, a police sniper use of force uh, is a little bit more uh, commonplace. And certainly, uh, use of forces by inter-team members, uh, hostage rescue, barricades, and, and whatnot, those, those occur almost weekly around the country. Uh, but shooting from a helicopter, uh, when and if that has, has to occur, uh, definitely is not mainstream. I would say, uh, and again, it's hard for me to sit there, and, and some, it's, some would sit there and say, well, you, you're, the one thing you point out is exactly what you're involved in doing, and that's training. I would say, look at your training and ask yourself a question. Um, if you have an aerial platform program, uh, where did your training come from? And is that good enough in today's society to be court defensible? Yeah, that's another great point you bring up. It's uh, assessing the training. Is it, does it match the role or responsibilities that you have um, and are you realistically prepared or did you simply uh, sign up for a course that uh, puts you through a couple motions that may not be uh, realistic for uh, your community expectations or your agency expectations uh, or even uh, the use of force uh, standards or laws in your state? Yeah, you know, I uh, every time we go out and we do aerial platform training for my agency, of course, uh, uh, I, I I run that training uh, with the uh, the pilots and the SWAT personnel. Uh, it is documented to the max um, each and every time, fully documented more than any any other sniper training or SWAT training that I do. I do that to protect the program. I do that to protect the individual officer to protect the pilot uh, to show that uh, when we make mistakes we make mistakes but uh, you know if we if we present this um, this appearance that uh, we're perfect and everything fired from the aerial platform is going to be a perfect shot then when it doesn't go the way we planned um, there's a lot of people that can have a lot of legitimate questions about um, our training. Sometimes we we provide the stick to get beaten with, and and uh, in our effort to be the best we can be, we forget to factor in that the suspect gets a vote on our plan, right? And there's all kinds of things that affect our tactical operation that we can do everything right and still have a bad outcome. So uh, that's something that we're trying to be better at as a profession, and I think. Obviously, uh, we do a decent job, but there's there's a lot of room for improvement there, and especially for those of us, uh, we're all competing for budgets, right? And we're all the government is usually behind a little bit in technology investment, and trying to figure out the best ways we can we can document that stuff. 
So I, I appreciate you bringing that up, especially to uh, future future leaders in your organization. If uh, we don't document it well, then it didn't happen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and I could go, you know, the seven occurrences that uh, I spoke of, I, I, I could spend another half hour just trying to get through uh, a quick synopsis of each of those. Uh, but uh, you know they're they're pretty much out there. Uh, if you if if your uh, viewers want to kind of look them up, um, not a whole lot of them. Um, I, I do want to address if you've got a SWAT team and you've got a law enforcement helicopter, should you go down this road? And I, I would I would say uh, at first uh, helicopter SWAT team, uh, then you need to consider an aerial platform program. But uh, I really want to stress the point of doing it correctly, uh, especially if you are birthing, birthing this, this program uh, from, the, from the start and you haven't had one before. Uh, because <clears throat> uh, to go down this road, you need to have support. You need to have support from, first and foremost, the pilots that are going to fly, uh, SWAT personnel. Uh, usually, you don't have to twist the arm of the SWAT guys. To shoot from a helicopter very much uh it's kind of a given uh but but supervisors you've got to have everyone on board uh with the aviation the aero bureau if you will uh so that would be first line supervisors second line supervisors third line supervisors uh sometimes those two different work groups SWAT and uh aviation are not under the same tree organizational tree so that sometimes can present problems um, but if those things are aligned and you have the support for it, then you need to really seek out formal training. If you already have a program, then you need to seek out some formal training to come in and kind of take a look at what you're currently doing. Uh, and again, not necessarily they may have suggestions for changing up some stuff or tightening up what you're doing, but also it, it's, it's showing that you're going that extra step to do your due diligence to to make sure you're staying current with uh, the current TTPs that are existing in that particular application or discipline. Uh, so I think that's very important. Um, so you've got to have the formal training. You need to have formal training come in, even if you've got it. And then also, uh, you got to have buy-in. You got to have support for the training. Um, I, I tell uh, the community all the time: um, just because you get the training. If you do not follow it up with sustainment training and do that uh, with regular occurrence, then you probably should not be going down this road. I want to use LAPD as an example. Uh, they do a very, very fine job of their frequency of aerial platform training, which uh, is last I, I knew was every two weeks. So that is a high volume of training. Uh, certainly, they've proven they've been able to sustain it, and certainly back in 2017, they had one of the incidents uh, out of the seven, uh, which was a successful use. Um, so, uh, but I will tell you, if you, at a minimum, uh, cannot train aerial platform once every three months, then you probably shouldn't be doing it at all. Uh, twice a year is not enough. And uh, heaven forbid if you're only training, shooting that from the helicopter once a year. Uh, in my uh, opinion, uh, you're a liability and not an asset. 
Yeah, that that uh, info was fantastic. Reiterating the importance of that uh, peer or third party review, uh, just to make sure that you're keeping everything uh, contemporary. Uh, th- that's a step that uh, sometimes we can uh, overlook and uh, can become problematic if we are uh, really consumed with our own uh, processes. Can we use this as an opportunity to sort of transition and uh, give you an opportunity to uh, talk about some of the other uh, programs that uh, TACFLOW offers and uh, let us know where our listeners can go to learn more uh, about TACFLOW? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I, I first want to say kind of the origins of TACFLOW uh, is the brainchild of Rigo Durazo. Uh, Rigo is, is uh, he's, he's not as widely known uh, as some uh, in the training community and everything, but uh, you can go to our website at www.tacflow.com and you can see everyone that uh, teaches uh, for for Tacflow Academy. Tacflow existed uh, about the same year Chris Cowell got out of the Navy and uh, the SEAL teams and uh, formed up Craft International. So uh, upon Chris Cowell's back in 2013, uh, uh, Rigo decided to uh, uh, basically uh, attach Academy to the TACFLOW name. Um, I get asked quite often, what what exactly does TACFLOW mean? Uh, and I and I, again, I fall back to what uh, the creator, the founder, uh, told me. So it stands for uh, tactical and the flow of information uh, in the synergies of principles. Uh, that is where TAC and FLOW comes together and we come up with the TACFLOW Academy. So, um, and he also, uh, back in 2013, uh, with our logo, wanted to rebrand the logo. And uh, some of the logo there, certainly the skull uh, that you will see on the website, all that is designed to pay homage to Chris Cowell and the Cowell family, which we, uh, to this day, strongly support uh, his brother and uh, Chris's parents. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, my friend. I didn't, I didn't want to impose on you, but it's a, that's a pretty special thing to do, and uh, especially to keep, you know, the things that were important to uh, to Chris alive and and put pay honor to him that way. I, I thought that was a pretty cool story. I, I just didn't want to uh, impose that on you to share it, but no, no, not not at all. And if, if you if you allow me, I'll kind of go through some of the the highlighted courses and the instructors and just a quick synopsis on the courses for uh, your viewers if they're uh, so interested in the courses. Uh, so uh, uh, I'll kind of start sniper heavy and then we'll transition. And I will say this disclaimer: Tactical Academy is not is not all sniper training. Uh, so <laughs> for your viewers out there that say all the time on Instagram they see is sniper uh, training. Well, that's true, but we're, we're going to be intentionally trying to change that and throw some uh, some more content on there so that, uh, you know, they can see it's just not a sniper uh, curriculum uh, company. Anyway, so the first one is Urban Sniper Response Tactics. Uh, this is a three-day course that was developed by Jair Brown. Uh, and Jair basically is teaching a uh, unconventional urban sniper course. Um, uh, he has one coming up, uh, which I think is already full, uh, that will be in um, uh, a couple months here in Texas. Uh, the second one I wanted to mention is a tripod utilization course. The the advent and the proliferation of tripods being used by the police sniper community has exploded. Uh, to that end, uh, there's not a whole lot of formal 
training courses out there. It's just basically guys are given tripods and told, hey, go do your thing on the range. You know what you guys do. And that's about it. So we want to develop a course, a three-day course that really uh, speaks to that. That course is instructed and created by Josh Nielsen. We also have a sniper team leader course, which is a three-day course. Uh, that is for whoever, and I really want to stress, uh, for every sniper cadre out there, you need to have a sniper team leader. Uh, that may be uh, a uh, troop, or that may be a supervisor. Um, it just looks different depending on where you're at. But sniper team leader course is very, very important for the functionality of your team um, uh, uh, going about it every day. So that is a three-day course, and that is uh, the curriculum was created by Sean Harris. Sean also teaches a sniper instructor course. These are uh, very far and few between across the country, uh, quality sniper instructor courses being taught. If you are teaching, uh, you need to have some type of certification, and I'm a huge uh, proponent of that, and, and we have one that offers for that. That's a five-day course, again, taught by Sean uh, Harris. Transitioning out of the sniper community, uh, we, we go into the Ballistic Shield. So we have a three-day course called the Ballistic Shield Concepts. That is uh, a course that is taught by Rigo Durazo and Chris Trapp, uh, an excellent course, just really kind of redefining the way a ballistic shield can be utilized uh, in CQB environment. Uh, everyone that goes through it is just blown away with what you can do with the shield, um, and it is so far away from traditional use of the shield that more and more of these teams that receive this training are starting to use the shield much, much more. They also have a ballistic shield program, which is a five-day course also. Uh, the last two I want to mention. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Please. Mark, on that ballistic shield course, is it tailored for uh, SWAT operators or is that something that uh, patrol officers uh, should endeavor to attend as well? Uh, you know, currently they are teaching it for uh, the, the SWAT community. I would say, though, uh, very good question, that they probably could create a course for uniformed personnel uh, that would be deploying also. Uh, there's some pretty advanced techniques with these shields, and they're actually doing some really neat uh, work with the shield, but they're using the rifle rated shield, so a level three shield, uh, and they're primarily using the ones that come from point blank, uh, uh, and it's kind of amazing what they're able to do with the old. Uh, and again, the, the materials have gotten so advanced, and they've lightened up these shields that you're able to uh, really maneuver a level three uh, rifle rated shield pretty effectively. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure uh, that will, that may be uh, the, uh, a next step to it. If certainly, if there's interest in that, you remember those original shields that were rifle rated? Because you've been doing this a long time. Do you remember how heavy those things were? They were on casters. Yeah, you know, I actually I actually first cut my teeth uh, teaching away from my home agency teaching ballistic shield, and uh, even the level three shields were a good 35, 40 pounds. And again, it really limited what you could do with the shield. And plus, uh, you know, if you were a big bulky SWAT guy, and no problem carrying that shield, right, and shooting with it. But if you, you know, not everybody is the big fella. So uh, if you were smaller, or uh, you know, it's just the sh the shields. You know, I think the I think the technology has developed to a point where you can really do some tactics and techniques with the shield that previously is something you would not have done. So. I think that's definitely uh, you know worth a look by uh, your membership and other uh, others throughout the community. Um, the last one I wanted to mention is uh, we have huge success uh, and a lot of demand on this one is is Rigo Durazo teaches a police protective detail course. 
it's a five-day course and essentially it kind of um, it goes into your role uh, as a SWAT officer and also uh, if you were uh, running some type of uh, closed security detail uh, kind of you know from the time you pick up the protectee to the time you drop off the protectee everything involved through that uh, you know A to Z on the alphabet. Excellent my friend thank you for sharing that and uh, we're going to put the link to the to the site also on the bottom of our uh cast but i know you just told everybody that and thanks for sharing this the origin story so to speak of uh tack flow and uh just out of curiosity my friend when uh when are you scheduled to come back to california this year well you know i'm excited to announce uh had great success coming to the san diego area uh we are actually uh have been approved to do uh two aerial platform operations courses uh, in the San Diego Initiative area, uh, both are to be funded by UASI. So uh, I, I really wanted to press, uh, you know, it's a great segue for this is uh, we have been approved by UASI in the past with the public venue curriculum. Uh, we just got approved for uh, certainly aerial platform. So um, they know us, uh, the DHS knows of us. So, uh, you know, there there's monies out there that you don't have to spend your own training uh, money uh, from your own budget to bring us out to do the training. So uh, please explore that, explore that with your grant writers, explore that with those that are in charge of UASI. Uh, if you fall within the UASI area in California, uh, and uh, you know certainly that may be a means to bring us out and at really no cost to your agency. Yeah, a plug for UASI, my friend. They are uh, fantastic. You're gonna have to put some work in for uh, you folks that don't know about UASI if you're in in the area that UASI covers. You got to put some work in and get your paperwork done and attend the meetings, but uh, it is a huge way to get some top-notch training in your organization that, quite frankly, uh, my organization could never afford to do. And uh, I've been successful in the past uh, get, you know, going through that approval process, uh, you know, regionally as well, you know, eventually federally through UASI. And uh, I can't, I can't speak highly enough about it. It's, it's a way that we can get top-notch training that we probably never could never could do any other way. So, hey, Mark, I want to say thank you. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, please check out the site, and uh, I hope to see you next time uh, we're in San Diego at the same time teaching because uh, I didn't get to sneak over there and watch that. But uh, as a uh, former sniper, uh, I got in trouble, by the way, teaching the other day and uh, for Cato when I called sniper the parents of the SWAT team. Uh, they, the, the entry guys didn't like that very much, but, uh, sometimes, uh, the snipers are the parents of the SWAT team. This is how it is. Well, it, it certainly can be a love hate relationship, uh, <laughs> but, uh, we, we, we understand at the end of the day, you know, uh, what we bring table and certainly the entry guys bring their skill sets too. So it's, it's all good. In all seriousness, it is, uh, we just have cooler camouflage and have better snacks. <laughs> thank you, sir. Pleasure to be on, and uh, thank you to you guys uh, for what you do for your community. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.